maybe it's been talked about the past few years. But I'm talking about the 99% of society, the 99% of the relationships that we, that we engage in in our lives. Think about all of your relationships over the past week, 168 hours you know, subtract out the time you're sleeping, subtract out the times that you're by yourself and only think about what the, was the task at hand. But when you were relating to other people, who were you relating to? Who, who were the relationships that you were most concerned about, most involved in, working with every day? Uh, every day, in and out, Monday, uh, Monday, Sunday, Monday, all through the week. That's going to be our wives and our husbands. It's going to be parents and children. It's going to be workers and bosses that, that that's where we live life you know, we've been looking at the book of colossians and talking about these ways that we ought to be living doing everything in word or deed for the name of the lord jesus christ where do we mainly do that we mainly do that in our homes and at work and this is this is good this is right this is the way god designed it to be from the beginning most of god's commands lived under the 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 lordship of God lived under God's word were about family. It was about marriage. It was about working. And so when we think about how do we apply what it means to be, to die with Christ and be raised with Christ, to, uh, to be reconciled to God, to, to, to receive Christ and to walk in Christ. Well, I hope it looks like what are we doing with all of our lives in these basic relationships? What I hope you'll see today is that whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in your home and at your workplace. Today we're going to be in Colossians 3. Colossians 3. Colossians 3. What I want you to see first is wives and husbands, the relationship between wives and husbands. Wives and husbands. Colossians 3. We're going to start in verses 17 through 19. Colossians 3. Verses 17 through 19. This is what it says. Colossians 3, 17 through 19. Wives and husbands. It says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. I want you to see that, that these relationships that we're going to be talking about today, they are not disconnected from everything else that Paul says in Colossians 3 or even the rest of the book of Colossians. Paul has said, as you receive Christ, you receive Christ as Lord. You receive Christ as the one who reconciled you to God. You receive Christ as the one that you died with Christ and were raised with Christ. As you received him, so walk in him. Set your mind on the things that are above. Set your mind on Christ who is, who is at the right hand of God. He is your life, and so then put off the old man. Put to death the sinful sinfulness, what is earthly in you, the sinful parts of you. Put those things to death. Get rid of those things. Get rid of sexual immorality and lust. Get rid of covetousness. Be rid of anger and wrath and, and obscene speech and lying. Get rid of those things. And instead, put on compassion. Put on kindness. Put on humility, put on gentleness, put on patience, forgive one another. Over all these, put on, put on love, put on love, which binds everything together. 
Put on all these things. This is what it means to be a new man in Christ. This is what it means to be the new humanity in Christ. This, these are all these things. All these things that we are putting off and putting on in Christ. Now being applied to these relationships. To, to wives and to husbands. The reason why I read verse 17. Is because that's really kind of a transition verse. Whatever you do. Whatever you do. Whatever you do. Do All, whether word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Don't be angry. Don't be covetous. Do not engage in sexual immorality. Do not lie. Put on compassion, kindness, love, humility. Whatever you do in word or deed, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then do it in these relationships. These these relationships where we live 99% of our lives. We live right here relating to these people. Take these things, put them into practice here. Now there's also something that that I think is in the background where something that Paul has taught is that we are the new humanity in Christ. That is, all of the, the earthly distinctions that the world recognizes, we no longer recognize those. So there's neither Jew nor Greek. Not circumcised or uncircumcised. There's not, there's not civilized or uncivilized, barbarian or, or, or Greek or, or Scythian or slave or free. All of these, a great many of these social distinctions that our world makes, God no longer makes those distinctions. We are all one in Christ. So we are not judging one another based upon our backgrounds, based upon ethnicities, based upon, based upon culture, based upon, uh, based upon uh, our, our social status in life. Instead, we are being made one new humanity in Christ. We are putting on Christ and everybody who has put on Christ is in Christ. A new humanity. A new people of God. But you could see how this could be taken the wrong way. As it is today and as it could be in any age. If we're all one in Christ, does that mean that all of the the authority and submission and obedience relationships in life that they're all done away with, does this mean that wives are no longer to be submit to their authorities? Well, you can see why someone might want that and try to take it there. But you can see here, what we're going to see here in many other parts of the Scripture is that that's not what God designed. And even behind that, what I hope you'll see is that, that God ordained authority. There, there's, a, there's a choice between a God-given authority and anarchy. Where there, is no, where there is no God-given authority, submission, and obedience structure... There is anarchy. There is lawlessness. There is the failure of society. By society, I don't mean just society at large. I mean the way that people relate to one another. Relationships cannot flourish where there is no and focus and obedience given to the design of God. And so Paul goes in and he starts to talk to these different people. And you can see there he talks to wives first and he talks to husbands. Now, actually, I want to look at husbands first. And, and, and I don't normally take things out of order, but I think I have a good reason today. I want you to think about this. In the ancient world, verse 18 would not have been countercultural. That wives ought to submit to the authority of their husbands, that's not countercultural at all. In the ancient Greek society, in ancient Jewish society, in most ancient societies, that would not have been countercultural at all. It is in our culture. But, verse 19 would have. Verse 19 would have been countercultural. There is no comparable example in the ancient world of anybody ever giving advice 
to husbands saying, love their wives. That comes from God. That comes from Christ. And if that is something that is accepted in our society and culture, do you know why that is? It's because of the influence of Christianity on our society and culture. The, the reason why husbands love their wives, why everybody accepts that in our culture, is because of the influence of Christianity. One wonders if husbands will continue to love their wives whether, where the influence of Christianity begins to decline. I think that it's highly likely that they will not. But let's look at verse 19. That's where it says, husbands, love your wives. Now, what does it mean to love your wife? Well, I think that's where Col- the rest of Colossians 3 really comes in. Who, what, is it, what am I doing to love my wife? But to begin with, love is basically a self-giving attitude. God defines what love is by giving of himself, especially he gave of his son. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God, God gives of himself. He lays down his life for us. He gives Jesus to lay down his life for us. That's what it means to love your wife. If you look at, what, look at what, what Paul has said before, it looks like being compassionate with your wife. Feeling with your wife. Feeling for your wife. Loving your wife. Being kind to your wife. Doing good deeds for your wife. Looking, looking for ways to, to, to be kind and love your wife. It looks like being humble. The idea of humility is the idea of being a servant, taking, taking your position. You, you are the husband. You are the authority in the household. But taking that uh, authority and taking that position and putting yourself as a servant toward your wife, trying to serve her needs, trying to look out for her, trying to love her, it looks like gentleness. Gentleness toward your wife. It looks like patience toward your wife. Being, being patient toward your wife. Watching out for her. That's what it looks like to love your wife. Paul is not that. It's, it, it, love your wife is not hanging out there on its own. Paul has been saying, set your mind on the things that are above and put off the old man. Put off sexual immorality. Put off lust. Put off every evil sexual desire. Put off covetousness. Put off anger and wrath. Somebody who is an authority anywhere. What is, what, what is the, the temptation? The temptation is to be harsh, to use your authority not to be self-giving, but to be self-serving. And so that's what Paul says. He says, do not be harsh with your wives. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. I, I, think, I think husbands ought to recognize that there are there is structure in life to hold you to this, and there should be accountability in your life. As a church, our responsibility as a church would be to, to reprove and to correct the man who is harsh with his wife. A man who is harsh with his wife, we ought to be, we ought to be approaching him and trying to correct him. And if he is unrepentant, it is appropriate and right that the church put the harsh husband out of the church. That's a part of our responsibility to one another. That's a part of our responsibility to hold one another another accountable uh, to these things. And and beyond that, it is right that the criminal justice system would penalize abusive husbands. Christians ought to be in support of that. 
It is because, again, this would not be, there was no, there was no accountability to government in the ancient world. But because of the influence of Christianity on our society, our society rightly criminalizes abuse. And the church is going to hope for a man's repentance. They're going to pray for his salvation. They're going to, they're going to rebuke him and, and correct him. And they're going to forgive him. Not all the consequences are always going to be taken away. But God has ordained authority. Or authority is God's idea. And God has given the government authorities the power to punish evil. And we ought to call being harsh and abusive evil. But more than that, there is, there is something greater than that. It is the greatest of them all. Later on, Paul is going to say, masters should remember that they have a master. Well, husbands, you ought to remember that you have an authority over you. There is a God in heaven. God is watching you. If you are harsh to your wife, God is against you. Peter says that if you do not treat your wife with understanding, then your prayers will be hindered. God is against you. Against such things, earlier in, in, in chapter 3, Paul says, against such things as these, as, against such things as anger and wrath and malice, against such things, the wrath of God is coming. You know, sometimes abusive husbands can hide in society. Sometimes harsh husbands can hide in the church. But there is one eye that you cannot hide from. You cannot hide from God. God sees everything that you do. God, God hears your harsh words. He sees the way you treat your wife. And he is against you. If you are harsh toward your wife, God is against you. And there will be a judgment day. And there will be payback. And you should know that. Now then, what is the opposite of being harsh with your wife? It's being tender. It's being compassionate. Peter, in 1 Peter 3, he talks about living with your wife in an understanding way. Be tender with your wife. Love your wife. Be concerned over her as the weaker vessel. Use your strength and authority as a husband to care for your wife, to love your wife. In the Lord Jesus Christ, that is his command to us. That's what we're responsible for. Now that we turn back to verse 18, where it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now what does it mean to submit to your husband? Well, let's be sensible here. I think we know what it means to submit. I think we also need to recognize that we we do not like, and I'm not just talking to wives here, I'm talking to everybody, we do not like to submit to authority. Since we rebelled against God's authority in the garden, we have all not wanted to submit to God-given authority. We all have that tendency. We need to note that. We need to know that about ourselves. We need to know that we do not naturally submit to God-given authority. It's going to vary by degrees, but, but wives, at some point... You're going to, to be called upon to submit to the authority of your husband, and you're not going to want to do that. And yet, that is what's right. We, we know what it means to submit. Uh, lots of times when we even try to define what it means to submit, we try to define it with so many disclaimers and uh, so many exceptions and so many loopholes that, that what we really want somebody to tell us is that we don't have to submit. And that's not right. I want you to hear, you ought to submit to your husbands. And that means respecting and obeying their authority. Their authority is not, is not something that they earned. 
Their authority in the household is not something that they earn. It's not something that they, they derive for themselves. It's not something, hey, when you finally decide that they're a good enough leader, then they're the authority in the house. No, God has made them the, the, them the authority in the household. That's not, it's, not, it's not their idea. Husbands did not come up with the idea that they ought to be the authority in their homes. I, I, I can think of a lot of husbands, and a lot of husbands are living this out. They don't want to be the authority in their homes. But, but you are. Whether you want to be or not, you are the authority in your home. And wives, they're the authority in your home. You ought to be respecting their authority and obeying them. That means that a husband has every right to expect that his husband, when, when, he, tells, when he tells her to do something, every husband has a right to expect his wife to do that. When a husband makes a decision, he has every right to expect that his husband would support that. When he sets a pattern in the home, He has every right to expect that a husband would follow along with that pattern. That's what it means. And and I think we even go back to earlier in in Colossians 3. We know that it's with their, their actions. But remember, Colossians 3 does not only address actions. It's not just about deeds. It's about words. It's not even about just about words. It's also about where it comes from. It's about, about in your heart, being ready to respect and follow the leadership, the, obey the authority of your husband. That's where it ought to be. You ought to be ready to do that. Now then you look there and, and uh, he gives the motivation. As is fitting in the Lord. We'll talk about this more later, but what's your, what's your motivation as a wife, what is your motivation for submitting to your husband? The Lord. If you've died with Christ and been raised with Christ, you're under the lordship of Christ. You ought to be doing everything, word or deed, in the name of the Lord Jesus. You ought to be obeying Jesus Christ. You ought to be walking in Christ. As you receive Christ, so you ought to walk in him. And that means submitting to your own husband's. And this is, this is something that is voluntary. By voluntary, I don't mean that it's optional. By voluntary, I mean that you ought to willingly do it. Not reluctantly or begrudgingly. But as you would not reluctantly obey the Lord Jesus Christ, you ought not reluctantly submit to the authority of your husband. This is the motivation. If you're in the Lord Jesus, your responsibility is to submit to your husband. Why submit to your husband? Now then, before we leave verse 18, I want you to notice a little something. Uh, there is the, the word for submit there is the word hupotasso, which means submit, translate submit. You, you'll notice in the other relationships, when it talks about children, it's a different word. It's the word translated obey, it's hupakuo. Same thing with worker, uh, slaves and masters. So that, 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 is a, that is a technical point that makes a common sense uh, um, application. Your, your wife's submission to her husband is not the same as a child's submission to her, his parents or a worker's submission to his master. We ought to know that. that. That ought to be common sense. Common sense is not always as common as it ought to be. Uh, you, you're not, husbands, you're not, supposed to, you're not supposed to order your wife around like she's your slave. You're not supposed to order, order your wife around like she's a child. She is your one flesh. She is the closest person in your life. She is your closest companion in your life. And you are to, she is to submit to you, but she is supposed to submit to, uh, to you as a wife to a husband, not a child to a parent or a slave to a master. 
So you should keep that in mind. Before we leave the wife, uh, the, the wife-husband relationship, I want you to go back to verse 13 and keep something in mind. For, for all of these relationships, and we'll start here with wives and husbands, that's where Paul says, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so, all, so you also must forgive. That bearing with one another, I talked about last week. It's really just pretty straightforward, kind of putting up with one another. One paraphrase says, making allowances for one another's flaws. Wives and husbands, you ought to make allowances for one another's flaws. All of, all of Colossians 13 applies to all of these relationships. You ought to make allowances for one another's flaws. If your, your wife, husbands, your wife is never going to fulfill your every desire. It's never going to happen. She was not meant to do that. She cannot do that. She cannot, she cannot make you perfectly happy. Wives, your husband cannot make you perfectly happy. She, he is never going to do everything perfectly. If your, if your wife strives to do all that she can, to do in every way, in word or deed, do everything that she can to support you, to submit to you, to help you, she's never going to do that perfectly. Husbands, if your wife does everything that she can to help you, it's never going to happen perfectly. Wives, your husband's never going to love you perfectly. He's never going to do it. All right? All right? He's never going to do it. Make allowances for one another's flaws. And not only for one another's flaws, but we're going to sin against each other. Husbands and wives, you're going to sin against each other. Forgive as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. You're never going to make it. God, God intended that the marriage relationship would go all the way to death. You're never going to do that until you are ready to forgive one another. Even as Christ forgave you. How much did Christ forgive you? Husbands, when your wife doesn't always do everything that you think you made it really clear that you wanted done, how much has Christ forgiven you? Wise, when, when you feel like your husband does not love you, he's not, he's not taking care of you, he's not as tender toward you as you, you wish that he was, how much has God in Christ forgiven you? I want to add even one layer on top of that, and I think that this is consistent with the whole of Colossians. Do not expect more from your husband or your wife than the Lord Jesus does. If, if, if your husband or your wife is living out Colossians 3, but they're not doing it the way that your family did it when you were growing up. Or they're not doing it the way that society says that they ought, ought to be done. Or they're not doing it the way you think it ought to be done. But they're living out Colossians 3. You have no right to add anything to what the Lord Jesus has commanded. Husbands. Husbands and wives. Wives and husbands. You have no right to add to one another what the Lord Jesus has not commanded. I think this is one of those areas, this is just this is a little bit of my, my opinion or just my observation. This is especially a concern among Bible-believing conservative Christians. Because out of, a, out of a desire to do everything, word and deed, in the name of the Lord Jesus, we have sometimes over-prescribed what we ought to be doing. Let's not go beyond what the Lord Jesus Christ has commanded. If your husband or wife puts off sexual immorality and lust and every evil desire, if they put away anger and wrath and malice, if they, if they, if they begin to tell the truth, 
If they put on compassion and kindness and humility and, and gentleness and over all these they put on love and they're, they're being patient with it, well, what, what more can you expect? <clears throat> you ought not expect anything more than that. And, and look at Colossians 3. Let's not overcomplicate marriage. Look at Colossians 3. If, if, if everybody were to go along with Colossians 3, 1 through 19, that'd be a good marriage. Set your mind on the things that are above. Put off sexual immorality, lust, covetousness. Put off anger, malice, obscene speech, abusive speech. Tell the truth. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Put on over all these love. Make allowances for one another's faults. Put on forgiveness. Forgive as God and Christ forgave you. That's marriage. That's a good marriage. That's a Christian marriage. We don't have to, we don't have to overcomplicate it. Let's, let's strive for these things that are, that are first, that are foremost. Let's concentrate on these things. As you become, as you are remade in the image of your creator, in the image of Jesus Christ, you're going to be a better husband. You're going to be a better wife. That's where our focus needs to be. Sometimes we focus a little too much on tactics, on, on, on prescriptions. Let's focus on character and virtue. Where character and virtue and wisdom are, are in place, where there is every desire to be obedient to the Lord, all these other things are going to take care of themselves. All right, so he, he speaks to wives and husbands. Next, he speaks to children and fathers. And always addresses the subordinate group first. So the, we're going to talk to the children first, the, the relationship between children and parents. Uh, now, obviously, he assumes that children will be present where this letter is read. In fact, I wouldn't even know how to preach this sermon if children were not present in the congregation of God's people. With all due respect with, to those brothers and sisters who are of a different mind, it doesn't make any sense to exclude children from church, from the gathering, from us coming together to hear God's word. It does not make sense for us to take all the children, move them to another room, and then say, children, obey your parents. Oh, we'll just skip that verse because they're taking care of that back there. Now, that's not, that's not how we ought to do. That doesn't make any sense. And so we, it's right that children be here, and I know that sometimes that's hard. You know, you've got, you've got, a, you've got a, 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 an infant, a toddler, three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old. Man, it, sometimes that's hard, right? Let me tell you, all the difficulties that you are going through to bring your children up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord so that they hear the preaching of the gospel week after week, all those difficulties are going to head off a lot of difficulties in the future. If you will, if you will train your children while they are young, and have them hear God's word over and over again from every passage of scripture, the whole counsel of God. Not just the little Bible stories that we like to tell children, but doctrine and the, the, the great works of God and what God has done through Jesus Christ. That's going to benefit you. That's going to benefit you as a parent. That's going to benefit your children. Now then, children, obey your parents. I know that you probably know that your parents think that you ought to obey them. And they're right in thinking that. But I want you to know that children, you obeying your parents, that's not your parents' idea. That's God's idea. God wants you to obey your parents. And I want you to know, like, like when you're thinking about obeying your parents, look, look, what, look, what, look what Paul says. Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. 
Do you love Jesus? If, you, if you're a child and you love Jesus, do you know what pleases Jesus? You know what pleases the Lord? For you to be obedient to your parents. You know, the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus died on the cross for our sins. You were, you were born. I, I, know, I know even you children, like, I hope you understand this. You were born hostile in mind toward God. You were born alienated from God. But you know what Jesus did? He died to reconcile sinners like us. That is, we didn't want God, but Jesus died for us anyway. We didn't want to have a relationship with God, but Jesus died to give us a relationship with God because that's how we know what is good and that's how we can have eternal life. And children, God intends the Lord Jesus who rose from the dead and he's now sitting at the right hand of God. That means that he's ruling. He's the king. He wants you to obey your parents. This is what's right. You know, I'm talking to children here. The word that's used for children here, it doesn't just mean young children. It means older children as well. Remember, we have to remember in the ancient world, this would have included all of the children who were living at home. This is very much set in as a household. Even when we're talking about slaves and masters, we're talking about people who would live in a household. So when we're giving attention to the household or the home here at church, we're, we're, not, we're not trying to emphasize something that the Bible doesn't emphasize. We are, we are trying to restore an emphasis that is in the Scripture to our lives. And so even older children who are living at home, as long as you're living at home, it is your lifelong duty to honor your parents. While you're living at home, the authority structure is always your father's the head of the household. And your parents are always the authority in the household. Paul's speaking to people who would have, who would have adult children in the home. And where they're living at home, the expectation is, is that they would obey their parents. That's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's an authority structure that goes all the way back to the beginning and it's going to continue all the way until Jesus Christ comes again. So all children, it, it, ought not ever be, it ought not ever be a question about who's in charge. The head of the household, the father, is in charge at home. And jointly with him, not, not, not excusing the wife, but the wife is in submission to the husband and they are jointly enacting the plans and the patterns and the, the commands that the head of the household, the husband, makes. They're doing that together. Now then, I've mainly been talking to children so far. Parents, uh, guess what? You're in charge. You're the authority in your home. Your parents are expect you, you as parents, you ought to expect your children to obey. So expect them to obey. Require them. It is, it is right, it is pleasing to the Lord that children would obey I think it's a fairly safe implication of that, that it is expected that parents would teach their children to obey. So teach your children to obey. Now then he also, then he speaks to fathers. Now when he speaks to fathers, he doesn't, he's not excluding wives as I already spoke about. He's not excluding mothers, but mothers are to be jointly with the, with the fathers. And the fathers, you may not want to be in charge, but you are. You're the authority. You're the head of the household. And he says, particularly to the fathers, now, what is, what is the temptation for everybody who's in authority? It's to be harsh. But he says to fathers, do not provoke your children. Or it could be translated, do not embitter them. The, the likely idea is that do not provoke them to rebellion. We don't have to go very far from this passage to think about how a husband or how a father might act to embitter or discourage or provoke his children to rebellion. A father who is filled with anger 
and wrath and malice toward his children, guess what? You're going to provoke them to rebellion. You're going you're to embitter them. You're going to discourage them. Do away. Get rid of that. Get rid of anger. Speak the truth. Don't tell lies, but don't get angry. Do away with anger. Do away with malice. You know what also we already talked about being patient with one another, bearing with one another. Fathers, make allowances for your, for your children's failures. Make allowances for their flaws. Have you ever been around a man, maybe, it was, maybe even it was your father, who could not be pleased by anything? Nothing you did ever satisfied him. Did you know that you can please our fa- Heavenly Father? And do you know what? You ought to be making allowances for your, your children's flaws. And, you know, children, you ought to be making allowances for your parents' flaws. Your parents are not going to be perfect. Your dad's probably already gotten angry. And he ought to repent and he ought to apologize. But he's probably already gotten angry. He's not going to be perfect. You have to forgive your parents. And parents, you have to forgive your children. Fathers, do you know how to provoke your children to rebellion? Never make allowances for flaws. Get angry all the time and never forgive your children of anything. That's how you provoke your children to to rebellion. That's how you make them bitter. That's how you break relationships with them. That's how they never listen to anything you say, but either as a a young child or as an older older child. They're not going to listen to you because you've been angry. You make no allowances. You cannot be satisfied by anything. Let me ask you this. How many children? And, and, and let's, let's be, I want you to be realistic here. Sometimes children rebel no matter what you do. That's on them. Okay? Children are responsible for what they do. Parents are responsible for what they do. But how many children rebel against a compassionate father? Against a kind father? Against a, a father who is gentle and humble? Against a, 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 a father who is laying down their lives for their children. For their, and and, and who, who, by the way, they not only see the father laying down his life for the children, but see the husband laying down his life for his wife. Does that provoke children to rebellion? I don't think it does. And so be mindful. Make allowances for one another's flaws. Forgive one another. And again... The whole, the whole teaching of Colossians. Don't add anything to what the Lord Jesus has said. You know, a lot of parents really want big accomplishments for their children. Many parents are rightly proud of the accomplishments that their children have made. But what if your child doesn't measure up to what you hope they would? Well, let me tell you, if they're living by Colossians 3... If they've been reconciled to God by the death of Jesus Christ... If they have died with Christ and been made alive in Him... If they, if, they are, if they are putting off the old man and putting on the new man, do you have any right to expect more of your children than that? I, I don't care if they make a C or a D. If they're following Jesus Christ and they're in everything they're doing, they're doing word or deed, it doesn't matter if they're not a great athlete or they don't love to hunt and fish the way you do. What if, what, if they don't, what if they don't know, what if they don't know about how to, how to take care of tools and build stuff? 
there, there are lots of things that your children are not going to measure up to the ideas of the world or the ideas that you had with, of your father when you were growing up or, or whatever. But if they're living Colossians 3, what can you expect of your, your children more than that? Again, I think that Christian parents might have often taken things that the Lord Jesus doesn't expect and put those things on their children. But let's make following Jesus Christ the most important thing. You got to teach your children all kinds of things. I'm not saying don't teach them how to do all these different things. You got to teach them everything from how to sleep and how to brush your teeth and, and, and how to, you, you might show them how to use a rod and reel or throw a football or whatever. I mean, you, you're going to teach them how to do that. But make sure that you're teaching them how to follow Jesus and that that's what's most important to you. They ought to know that that's what's most important to you. And children, don't expect more of your parents than the Lord Jesus does. Lots of parents want to give more to their children than they really can. Parents have limitations. They can't always spend as much money on their children as they'd like to. They can't always spend as much time with their children as they want to. They don't always have as much energy to devote to their children as they would like to. But child, children of of every age... If your parents are walking with the Lord, what more can you ask? You've got something that most, a lot of people don't have. So remember that. Make allowances. Forgive your parents. Praise God. Remember, don't forget what what Paul has said so many times in the book of Colossians. And be thankful. If your children walk in the Lord, be thankful. If your parents are walking in the Lord, be thankful. If you're, for whatever your parents did for you growing up, be thankful. Remember that, children and parents. Lastly, we'll talk about workers and masters. So let's read together verses 22. Verses 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. This is what it says. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance of your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And focus in on verse 22 for a minute. There where it says bond servants. You notice I said workers. In reality, we're talking about slaves. We're talking about people who are, who are the property of another human being. Oh, thank you, Steve. Uh, people who are property of another human being. And so what, what does that mean? What does that mean for us? Well, I think the, I say now, there are a lot of differences between Old Testament slavery and slavery in the ancient world, there's a lot of differences between slavery in the Old Testament, slavery in the ancient world, and slavery in the deep south uh, in the United States. Uh, and so there are differences, but we're still dealing with people who are owned by other people. The reason why I use the word workers is for a couple of different reasons. First, that's the most natural analogy for our lives. He's talking about people who obey. And so I think it works something like this. If slaves are commanded to obey their earthly masters, how much more should we who voluntarily engage in employment because we want to eat, uh, voluntarily engage in employment, 
obey our masters. So that, that's the first reason. I'll come back to the second reason in a second. But he says, you'll notice there he says, obey uh, your earthly masters. That's an important qualification, isn't it? That implies that your earthly masters are not your only master. They're not even your main master. Your master is in heaven. The Lord Jesus is your master. He is your Lord. So obey your earthly masters. Why, why do I obey my earthly masters? I, I obey my earthly masters primarily, firstly, because I'm a, I am in obedience to my heavenly master. Remember that Jesus Christ, he has conquered every authority. Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. That means that he is over every authority in the universe. He is over every authority. And he says to you who are under his authority, obey your earthly masters. Why would I obey my earthly masters? Because I am under the authority of Jesus Christ. The authority of Jesus Christ in my life means that I am under the authority of my boss at work now. He also says, not only are you to obey your earthly masters, but obey them in everything. Everything they tell you to do. Obviously, I, I haven't talked about this yet, but it goes back to children and parents. It goes back to, to uh, wives and husbands. It goes back to, it, it applies here to workers and masters. Remember that there's a hierarchy. Christ is the ultimate authority. Where other authorities come into conflict with Christ... Well, we obey Christ because he's the ultimate authority. But that doesn't happen as often as we might like to think that it does. Most of the time, we are simply going to obey our earthly masters. Most of the time, the authority of Christ in our life means recognize the, the authority of others in our lives. Rarely does the authority of Christ mean that we respectfully disobey the authorities in our life. Most of the time, the authority of Christ means we submit to other authorities. And so we ought to submit to those who are in authority over us. And if they tell us to do something, we do it. We do it. And, and not only when they're looking. That's the idea behind the idea of the, us being uh, giving eye service or as people pleasers. But instead of doing it with sincerity, you know, uh, he's talking about an insincere worker. You know how insincere workers, you know, they're, what they're doing is they are doing some of the things that their boss says, the ones that they really pay attention to. And they're doing some of the things that their boss says when their boss is looking. Paul says, obey your boss in everything, all the time, whether they're looking or not, whether it increases your pay or not, whether you get better benefits from it or not, whether you get paid more for it or not, whatever your boss says to do, all the time, wherever you're at, whatever they, whatever they say, you do what your earthly master tells you to do. He says, not, not, not when they're looking, not by way of eye service, not as people pleasers because you're trying to get a raise, but with sincerity of heart. Fearing the Lord, who's watching all the time. Your master may not be watching all the time. Your boss is not watching you all the time. Who's watching you all the time? The Lord Jesus Christ is watching you all the time. Transform your work life. That right there will. Work heartily. Do your best. Because God's watching you. Now let's get down to uh, chapter 4, verse 1. When it talks about masters, treat your bondservants. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You know, some people, and I think rightly, 
have, are troubled by the presence of slavery in the Bible. We, slavery does, we know that it's not right. And I want you to see what, what does, how, how does Paul instruct masters to treat their slaves? He says, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. You know what happens when you start to treat a slave justly and fairly instead of like property? Well, then they're no longer slaves, are they? Start to treat, you start to treat somebody like that justly and fairly, you're not treating them like a slave. You're treating them like a, fair, like a free man. You start to say, I'm going to pay you and give you all the benefits that you earn by your work. I'm going to pay you the respect that you're due as a worker and as one made in the image of God. I, I'm, I'm going to start to do that. Well, you start to see, well, there is no longer slave or free. There's a free man working for a free man. Already in the New Testament, there is the subversion of slavery. And while, while we recognize Paul is working within the societal structures of the time, he's working within a societal institution of slavery, even as many Christians have, the reason why slavery does not exist in the West anymore is because of the influence of Christianity. It is because masters who became Christians said we have to give justice and fairness to all people. All people, regardless of, of their class in society, as most, in most of history, slavery was not race-based. But then even as those in England and the United States said, we must do justice and fairness toward all men made in the image of God, including those who have a different color skin from us. It is because of the influence of Christianity that slavery is abolished. Everywhere that Christianity has gained influence in society, slavery has been abolished. You know, there are lots of places where slavery still exists. Do you know where it exists? Where, where Christians are not. Where they have not influenced society the way that they have in the West. But here, the reason why slavery has been abolished is because of Christians. Now, not all Christians in the past have lived consistently with this. But we ought to recognize that it's because of Christians. It's because of the influence of Christians who treated, treated others fairly and justly that these things happen. Now then, I mentioned that you know, there are multiple levels of accountability. You know, there, were no, there was no accountability for masters in the ancient world, though. There was no accountability. There was no one in the government who was going to say, Hey, you can't treat your slave like a piece of property. Do you know who does, though? God. God. And even now, bosses. You want to try, to, you want to try and squeeze your workers and treat them unjustly and unfairly? You know who's watching you? God is. God is watching you. And this is a bigger point just about society in general. You cannot have you cannot maintain a just and fair society unless you know that there's a master in heaven watching you. God has ordained that the government would have the power, that the, that the civil government would have the authority of the sword to punish those who do evil. But the police can't be everywhere at once. And you can't criminalize every form of immorality. The only way for there to be a just and equitable, a just and fair society 
is to know that there is a master in heaven. For people to have the fear of God in them. I think that one of the things that our society wants, our society wants good and loving authority. Our society wants justice and equity. And what our society is continually doing is saying that it does not want a God in heaven to enforce it. What's the church to do? What do Christians do? You know what we're going to keep doing? We're going to keep proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what the the Christians in the first century said? They didn't say Caesar's Lord. They said Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. That's what we were proclaiming. Because Christ is Lord, we submit to the civil authorities. Because Christ is Lord, we submit to, wives submit to their husbands, children submit to their parents, and workers submit to their earthly masters. But Christ is Lord. We keep proclaiming that. And maybe one day, if the Lord wills, enough people will come to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, and there will be justice. We will live in a more just and more equitable society. But you cannot have justice and fairness without God. You cannot have justice without a judge. You cannot have fairness where there is no recognition that all people, including unborn people, including including people who are of a different race, including people who are uh, living in a different place. You cannot have justice until you have God. Fear God. And if you fear God... That's going to transform your home. That's going to transform your business life and your work life. That's going to transform all of society. Where there's the fear of God. Now then, here at the end, I've talked about these three different kinds of relationships. And I haven't talked about a few verses here. I'm going to come back to those. And I want to talk about motivation. It's already been hinted at a few different times. I want to make it clear here. What's, what's my motivation? I kind of have a picture of like this starlet, uh, you know, from the 40s and 50s or something. What's my motivation? You know, how, how am I supposed to play this role? What am I supposed to do? Look at verses 23 through 25. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Connecting, you look at verse 23, connecting to verse 17. You know, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he's saying, <coughs> whatever you do, work heartily. Ask for the Lord and not for men. You're not working. You, wives, I, I, this is most directly related to workers with their, with their masters. So workers, work, work heartily from your heart, sincerely, all the time, everything you're told to do. Whether they're looking at you or not, because you, as if you are working for the Lord Jesus Christ and not for, not for people. That applies to workers. I think it applies to all these relationships, though. Wives, why, why should you submit to your husbands? Don't, don't submit to your husbands because, simply because they are, they are this authority. Submit to your husbands because Christ has put them in authority. Work work. How would, how would your, your marriage change if you began to work for your husband, submit to your husband, to the authority of your husband, the way as if you were working for the Lord Christ and not just for your husband? I know your husband's not, probably not as great as you wish he was. 
what if you submitted to him the way that, that you, would, you, you ought to in the Lord? Or, husbands, what if you loved your wife the way that Christ loved the church? Laid down his life for them. What if you turned from harsh, self-serving manner to a, to a tender, loving manner? How would that change things? Or children and parents. Children, do you only work for your parents? Do you only obey your parents when they're watching you? Teenagers, those who are growing in, in independence from their parents, are you only going to do what your parents tell you to do when they're watching you? Or are you going to do it as if you're working for the Lord and not for men? Workers work for the Lord. Work for the Lord, not for men. And, and, and what's my compensation? What's my pay package? You know, you kinda, you're, you're negotiating. You know, so you're thinking about what's going to motivate me to, to submit to my husband? What's going to motivate me to obey my parents? What's going to uh, 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 motivate me? What is my compensation for me to obey my earthly master? Jesus Christ won for you an inheritance. He's bringing it at his return. Earlier in chapter 3, he talks about Christ is your life. He's bringing your life when he comes again. That's the inheritance you have. The inheritance of eternal life. The inheritance of, of what you have, uh, what you desire. The glory, the not being alienated from God anymore, but being brought back into the presence of the glorious presence of God. And you know what? You can't work for that. So don't think... Oh, I, I want to know what my compensation is. You've been, your compensation is not a wage compensation. It's a grace compensation. Your reward, your inheritance is not what you worked for. It's what Christ worked for. He lived the life that you ought to have lived. He died on the cross to reconcile you to God. He died on the cross to cancel all your debts. It is his riches who paid off your life. Then he says, the end of verse 24, you are serving the Lord Christ. You are serving the Lord Christ. Not just on Sunday mornings when you come to church. Not just when you're doing your spiritual disciplines and reading your Bible and praying. That's not the only times that you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not only when you're doing evangelism. It's not only when you're doing ministry types of things. Those aren't the only times that you're serving the Lord Jesus. When you, wives, when you submit to your husbands, you're serving the Lord Jesus. Husbands, when you love and lay down your life for your wives, you're serving the Lord Jesus. Children, when you obey your parents, you're serving the Lord Jesus. Fathers, when you are loving and teaching and instructing and disciplining your children, you're loving the Lord Jesus. Workers, when you are working for your earthly masters, you're serving the Lord Jesus. Masters, when you are dealing justly and fairly with your workers, you are serving the Lord Jesus. There's a God in heaven. Now then, what about, what about the husband who doesn't love, or the wife that doesn't submit, or the child that doesn't obey, or the, the, the father who gets angry? What about the worker who doesn't work? What about, the, what about the, the master who doesn't treat people with justice and fairness? The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. 
What he's saying is, is that, that wives, in our society, you can get away with not submitting to your husbands. You, in fact, if you're, if you're disrespectful, you might even get applause from our culture. You'll get applause. You'll, you'll be praised for your independence in our culture. But to the wrongdoer, you'll be paid back. Or children, you, you may obey, you may disobey your, your parents. You may have good parents, or even if you have bad parents. You disobey them, you disobey them to your own harm. Because this, this is what happens with, with parents. This is what happens, I'm sorry, this is what happens to children. This is what happens to everybody. It would almost be better if when we did something wrong, right then we experienced the consequences of it. If only we experienced all the consequences of our sins right away, man, we would learn real quick. Children, I'm afraid that there are some things that you're going to do wrong that you're not going to experience, this, the, you're not going to experience the consequences right away. But eventually you're going to experience the consequences. To the wrongdoer, there's going to be payback. Workers, you think that you're getting by. You think that, you think that nobody sees. God sees. You think, that, you think that you can skimp on a few things. God sees. To the wrongdoer, there's going to be payback. Now then, that's mainly those who are typically in subordination. But you know what, you know what Paul also says? God shows no partiality. You're a husband in the home. You're the authority in your home. I hope you don't think that you're the ultimate authority. If you're, if you're a husband who is harsh toward his wife, if you're a father who is angry with his children, if you're, if you're a master who treats his workers badly, there's going to be payback. Against such things, earlier Paul says, against such things, the wrath of God is coming. Our society, our churches have lost the fear of God. You think, you think that you can hide. People hide. I know that you're hiding. I know that, you can, I know that you can hide your sin from the world. I know that you can hide your sin in church. You can't hide from God. The day of judgment is coming. The wrath of God is coming on the world for sexual immorality and impurity. It's coming on the world because of anger and wrath and malice. It's coming against all untruth and all lying. It's coming against all injustice. It's coming against all that is harsh and wrong and evil. There is a judge, and the day of judgment is coming, at which payback is coming. Fear God and obey the Lord Jesus' commandments. We know that God is there. That Jesus is seated at the right hands of God. That ought, to strike. That, ought to, that ought to be a wonderful thing. It is a wonderful thing because our life is hidden there. It is also a fearful and dreadful thing because he is the one that God has set up as the judge. And all those who think that they're, they're slacking, they're not working. They're not working heartily as if for the Lord. They're, they're slacking. They think they're getting away with it because the consequences aren't coming right away. There's payback. 
payday is coming. And for some, that payback, that payday, it's not a good thing. Now then, I want you to remember though, for those of you who have trusted in Jesus Christ, been reconciled to God through Christ, for those of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ, you've had all your sins canceled, your debt of sin has been canceled, you have died with Christ and been raised from the dead. You know what your reward is? It's eternal life. Jesus Christ bought you. He died for you. He won an inheritance for you. He bought a reward for you. It's yours in Christ Jesus. And you know what? That also is our motivation. All these things are in the Lord. These things please the Lord. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And so serve the Lord Lord Jesus Christ. In the fear of the Lord and out of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is bringing a compensation with him. He is bringing your life with him at his return. Let me pray for us. (coughs) Uh, Father, uh, please forgive us for uh, our failures in so many areas. Which one of us cannot look at your commands and... And feel unworthy to be in your presence or to call you our Lord uh, or to uh, name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please forgive us for our sins. And please strengthen us by your spirit, by the spirit of Christ. In every place where we ought to render obedience and submission to authority, help us to live that way. Everywhere where we ought to be giving kind and just and fair and loving authority, Help us to live that way. Help us to do what is right. Help us do what is right, not only when people are watching us, but help us to live for the war that comes from you. We know that you see our good works, whether other people do or not. Help us to be ready to labor away in obscurity where nobody sees. Nobody sees and nobody compensates and nobody praises and nobody, nobody gives us our, our due. Even if nobody gives us our due in this life, we know that we will receive much more than our due. Something contrary to what we are really due. We will receive life in Christ Jesus. Help us to live this way. Help us to hope in this. Grant that we, whatever we do, in word or deed, we would do for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that we would live as those who are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Uh, Now then, a part of the